When we talk about God's providence, the providence of God, uh, we want to start off by distinguishing it from, from sovereignty, because a lot of times uh, those two things get talked about as, as synonymous. So we want to distinguish between God's sovereignty and providence. So when we're talking about sovereignty, uh, we're talking more about God's right and ability to move all things to his desired end. The truth that God rules over all things and that he has the right to rule over all, that he has determinative power over every single thing. Nothing moves a millimeter outside of God's sovereign rule. So that's something that we believe, we understand, that's God's sovereignty. Providence, when we talk about providence, that refers more to God's purposeful sovereignty. The way that he provides specific things in specific situations through his sovereign power, the application essentially of perfect holiness, wisdom, and goodness to sovereign power. The the act of purposely providing for, sustaining, or governing. That's what we're talking about when we are talking about providence. So an illustration I use, and it's imperfect, but it may be a little helpful, would be to imagine yourself, think of yourself as lying unconscious and helpless before a person with a knife who plans on cutting you open with it. All right, so, so sovereignty is the understanding that that person has the power to do whatever they want to to you. You are powerless. They are all powerful in your life. That's sovereignty. Providence is the understanding that this person is a skilled, wise, and caring doctor, and he's using his sovereign power for your good through with a scalpel or surgery. So that's kind of the way to think. There's sovereign power, and then there's God's providential care. So a definition and I tried to see, I thought I took this from somewhere, but I might have just took a bunch of definitions and put it together in my own thing. I'm not sure. I'm sorry if I'm plagiarizing. But here's, here's, here's my definition. The providence of God is how we see the character of God on display through the sovereignty of God. The providence of God is how we see the character of God on display through the sovereignty of God. So it is God's purposeful provision for us. And so the origin of that word, providence, the origin of this word and our use for it traces back to the first time that it is used in the Bible, in Genesis 22. So turn to Genesis 22, a very familiar story that I'm sure that you will all recognize. Genesis 22, uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 14. Genesis 22, 1 through 14, and even just looking at what is going on in this passage and seeing the words that are used helps us to better understand what we're talking about when it comes to the providence of God. So Genesis 22, uh, beginning in verse 1, follow along. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah 
and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So right there, the, the place, all the places in that passage where you see the word provide is where we trace back the origin to the term, the understanding of providence, of providence. And what's interesting is that word that's translated as provide is actually the Hebrew word, a Hebrew word for see, for to see something. And it's translated that way when it's, when it's God seeing, God providing. So this refers to the fact that God does not see in a merely observing type of way like we do. So this is important. This is, this is part of the way we, we just accidentally a lot of times undermine God and make him like us. By definition, God does not see the same way that we do. He does not see in order to observe and process information. If he did that, he would cease to be God. God doesn't observe. God doesn't process information. When God sees, he has to be acting. God is acting. God does not recognize. So God doesn't, it's not like us. God does not recognize Abraham's need as in he is responding to something that he is observing. Like, oh, look, looks like something, uh, Abraham needs a ram. Let's get a ram in there. Uh, he's not observing it, watching it, trying to decide what needs to go there. This is all his action. He is seeing, ordaining, and providing for Abraham all at the same time, in the same action. He does not see in a passive way. He sees in an active way. 
And this helps us to understand a little better that when we are talking about God's providence, we're talking about something much different than how we might talk about people providing for one another, right? We respond to needs that we observe in each other, but God is always providentially working in everything that is going on all the time. He does not merely see, he always works. So it's helpful, helpful for us to think in these terms because it is our natural tendency to minimize the providence of God into single events that stick out. That's how we usually talk about providence. Like there's, there's some, oh, that was providential. That thing over there, that was providential. Like we can think of one or two of those things a week, providential. We throw it out there like that. But in this story, there is need for a burnt offering to take the place of Isaac. And they look up and behind him was a ram caught in the thorns. Providential. That, that's what we say. It's easy, it's easy for us to see that event and say that it is clear to see God acting in a providential way by the provision of that ram. How he has used his sovereign power to kindly care for Abraham and Isaac. But the biblical teaching on providence is that this is what God is always doing. This is what he's always doing. He can, his continual providence in our lives comes even more effortlessly for him than seeing does for us. It's something that's in the language that's just so, it speaks so highly of who God is. That, that we can't see as well. He's so far beyond us. Seeing his providential care is, is more effortless for him than seeing is for us. So the providence of God rightly understand, understood will work hand in hand with what we uh, talked about this morning. Uh, and it, it will keep you from anxiousness. And when you consider, and this is what I primarily want to focus on tonight, our primary responsibility I wanted to talk about this as we head out into a, a couple of months where, we, where we're not doing quite as much here in the church as far as gathering, but our, our responsibility doesn't change. It's still evangelism and discipleship. Understanding God's providence when it comes to evangelism and discipleship, that's what will keep you going no matter what. It'll help you when you feel like you have done everything right with your kids or in some other situation, but the result is a disappointing and confusing mess. This, this is not turning out the way I wanted it to. It'll help you when you've really messed up even, and you know you've messed up, and it just seems like you've done everything wrong, and you think you've maybe single-handedly ruined someone. Like I just tried to evangelize to that guy, and now he hates God and Christians more than ever before. That's not good. That's, that's how we think. The providence of God helps us deal with that. The providence of God, it keeps us focused on how we should actually define faithful Christian living. Because of the providence of God, we can focus everything on being faithful and obedient, and we don't have to be results-oriented. You don't have to be like that. It will give you the foundation for your joy in every aspect of evangelism and discipleship, knowing about God's providence. And it will cause you to rejoice in God's wisdom, refuse to rely on your own ability, and trust Him and continually give Him glory. 
the glory that's rightly due to his name. And it is extremely hard to take a topic like divine providence and condense it into a series of brief, concise statements that pack as much of the full weight of the theological truth as possible without, um, without distractedly heading in a bunch of different directions. And it would take a lot of work and a lot of study by a group of men much smarter than me to put something like that together. And that's what they've done in that little handout that you have from the London Baptist Confession. So we can be so thankful for a little document like the London Baptist Confession. And I was joking a little while ago when I said, if you didn't bring it in with you, but you may, you know, if you've got one of those Bibles with all the pockets and stuff in it, yeah, well, that's a good place to put the London Baptist Confession and get one, put it in your pocket. It's a good thing to have with you. Um, Bible first, but London Baptist Confession is nice to have. I'm going to commend that to you as, as a wonderful resource in your tool belt that you can go to continuously. It is a tremendous theological resource for us because while it is not inspired, it is the product of many faithful men doing the best that they can to take really complicated theological topics and looking throughout the Bible for everything on them, and then condensing that truth into compact, compact yet full statements without compromising the truth in any way. And they've, and they've I mean, what, what year is it? The what year? 1689. They have stood the test of time. They've stood the test of time and stood up to much scrutiny. It's a good, a very good confession of faith. And so I've printed that chapter on divine providence out for you. Um, so if you don't have it, there's still a few more uh, back there. Um, a few of you can, can share or use your own copy that you brought. But I printed that out for you. You can follow along. So let's look at it. We'll, we're just gonna, what we're going to do is we're going to look at each paragraph, and then I'm going to say a little bit on each of them, not fully explain it, just a little bit on each of them. And then we'll end tonight hopefully with a time of prayer. So, uh, look at the first, uh, the first paragraph. And you can tell, by the way, I'm sorry, I just copy-pasted straight from the website. I didn't, this isn't something I thought of earlier this week. I would have had one of the, Christy or Kate or someone do it, and it would have looked nicer. But, but there you go. Sorry. Paragraph number one. God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence to the end, uh, to the end for the which they were created according unto his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy." So what we see there in, in there, we can, we can see a little bit of the categories that some people would call general providence and special providence, which is a distinction uh, that's usually made. So, so general providence refers to God's continuous upholding of the existence and natural order of the universe, while special providence refers to God's extraordinary intervention in the life of people. So we see that a little bit in, in, that, in that one phrase, in his infinite power and wisdom. 
that he, he governs, he uses providence with both, it's, his power is involved that's infinite, and his wisdom is involved that is also infinite. And you see what we are talking about there. Sovereignty means that he has all the power to do whatever he wants, but providence shows us his wisdom, that he doesn't simply possess, it's not like he's like a kid with a magnifying glass over an anthill kind of power. Like he's got the power and he's going to just use it to kill ants. Um, he's, he's infinite. He has the power to do whatever he wishes and he is wise in how he uses it. So the counsel of, and, and notice also says, the counsel of his own will to the praise of his glory, of his wisdom and power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. So, so think, of, think of that and, and ask, how is, that, how is a phrase like that a comfort to us in our task of evangelism and discipleship? Because we have the goal of salvation, right, in our evangelism and of sanctification in discipleship, and that's good and that's what we should have. Evangel uh, sanctification for discipleship, salvation for evangelism, that's what we want to see. And we're trying to help unbelievers understand the gospel and we're trying to help believers look more like Christ. But what this wonderful little paragraph helps us see is that even, even when that doesn't happen, the way that we had, the way that we had hoped that it would, we know that God is still providentially working for his own glory, for his justice, for his, uh, he is using everything that we are doing in our faithful obedience to his good end, to his good end, whether it looks like it or not to us. Look back at verse 8 again in chapter 22. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. But what does that say? In, in, um, in the first, so that's the first place in the Bible where we see this concept of God's providence is that verse, verse 8, who is Abraham confident that, will, that God will provide the lamb for? Himself. He says, God will provide for himself the lamb. So yes, Abraham and Isaac will both be recipients of God's good and kind providence for them, but the purpose is for his own glory. God has staked his great name on his promises concerning the nation that's going to come through Isaac. There would be no reason for Abraham to have confidence that he or his son should make it up the mountain other than that. There's no reason that he, he would think that. Abraham is not confident in God's love for him and Isaac. That's not his confidence. He is confident in God's character and that God will uphold his name. That's where his confidence lies. God would have still been exceedingly kind to Abraham and Isaac, and he would have treated him better than he deserved if both of them died on that mountain, if they lived as much of the life as they got to live and died on that mountain, they still were treated better than they deserved. Abraham trusts that God will not cease. This is his trust, that God's not going to cease to be the same God who revealed himself to Abraham before. 
He's not going to cease to be that God in this moment, and he's going to indeed provide for the sake of his name. That is where his confidence is. And so we don't have confidence that each person that we evangelize, uh, each child that we parent or evangelize, each brother or sister that we disciple, we don't have confidence necessarily that they will change in the exact way that we would want them to, but we can have total confidence that in every one of our interactions, God is providentially orchestrating every word that we speak to his praise and to his glory. We can have total confidence in that. Let's keep going. Uh, look, at, uh, look at paragraph two. Uh, although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all, uh, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, so that there is not anything befalls any by chance or without his providence. Yet by the same providence, he ordereth them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. So, so here we're talking about uh, about uh, what we would call concurrence. God's operation with all created things, causing them to act according to his own holy end. Both things happening at the same time, whether through what, what this paragraph calls primary causes or secondary causes. So this is the truth. If you're familiar with open theism, this is the truth that open theists are trying to reject. The fact that God's sovereign providence incorporates his ordaining of second causes. The second causes. The, the will of mankind, for one. God ordains the choices of all sentient life forms in a way that allows him to still maintain sovereign control over everyone and everything, but in no way causes him to be guilty of sin or wrongdoing. That's how providence works. People make real decisions that they are really accountable for, but God providentially ordains everything to the good end that he has designed. This is the truth that the Bible demonstrates and is unashamedly demonstrates, but that we still can't quite understand. It's, it's unapologetic in the way that it presents these truths, and it doesn't seem to care that we can't understand it. And God just said, this is how it is. Look at my favorite example of this. Flip over to Acts 27. Maybe you'll recognize this story. Acts 27, uh, look at verse 13. Now, when the south wind blew gently, so, uh, supposing that they had obtained... So this is Paul. This is right before the, the shipwreck that ends, before they shipwreck on, Malta, uh, on, on the island of Malta. Uh, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon... A tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Cauda. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the, on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. So it's a bad storm. They're throwing stuff off of the ship. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. 
When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me, and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship, and he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, listen, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. So notice what's happening in there. And this is, again, this is the Bible just unapologetically telling us something about providence that doesn't quite make sense. It's, there's certainty that the men will be saved. It speaks clearly about that. Paul says, I am certain, I am confident in God that these men will be saved. But it is also certain that the men must obey Paul or they will not be saved. And it's also clear that the men are bearing responsibility because they should have listened to Paul in the first place. So God is sovereign over the choices of men to bring about his providential purposes and protection in such a way that it doesn't hinder the choices of people. They should have done something they didn't do. They're responsible. But it is also simultaneously true that God has said that none of them will die and that if they don't listen to Paul, they will certainly die. It just says both of those things doesn't apologize. That is, we see God's providence through secondary causes in that passage. Even though, and so even though this is a truth that we are unable to piece together in our mind how it works, and it's not like Luke, as he's writing Acts, is like, wait, did I just, oh, did I just contradict myself? I need to go back. Like, he knows what he just wrote. It's just been a few verses. He didn't write that, take a three or four year break, come back and finish the story and go and look back up there, and he's, that's, that's not what happened. This is God's Word. It, it just clearly presents both of those things as true. And even though we can't piece it together and understand it, it is so helpful for us in the mission of the church, because we know that the person that we're evangelizing, the person that we're discipling, or counseling, or parenting, we know that that person is responsible for their decision to obey or to disobey. There are real consequences that they deserve for whatever it is that they decide. 
But God's providential care for you and for them is never at stake, no matter what the response is. All right, number three, paragraph three. God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means, yet it is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. So this is, uh, this is just a great one because it, it reminds us that God uses normal means to bring about his providential work. But he's also free to interrupt that with miraculous work whenever he wants to. So, uh, so are you guys still in Acts 27? Look, look at the end of this story. Look at verses 43 and 44. This is the end, but the, the centurion wishing to save Paul kept them from carrying out their plan. They were going to kill him. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. So it's through the normal means of clinging to planks of floating wood that God brings about the, what, he's, what he's promised would happen in the saving of all of these sailors. The, the same way that many people are saved in shipwrecks all the time. God didn't give Paul this vision and then miraculously you know, pick the boat out of the water and take it and lay it down and just kind of drop it on land. He doesn't miraculously do it. He uses normal means the way that anyone surviving a shipwreck would by clinging to planks. None of the people were like, I don't need this plank. I was promised by God that I'm not going to die, and they just sink. They had to grab the planks or they would die, but the normal means of grabbing the planks is how God saves them. And, and so it's, it's only because of the extra part of the narrative of, of the, the vision of Paul and that we see here that our eyes are focused more clearly on God's divine providence. So we see divine providence in this just because we know what was said to Paul. If we were on the island of Malta watching these people kind of come in, float in on their boards, uh, the perception would not be that, oh, look, God has done a miracle in saving these people. No, we'd, we'd probably be like feeling sorry for them because of their broken boat. We wouldn't see the providence of God as saving act. We would just notice eh, those people don't know how to you know, sail a ship right, and here they come. Uh, we, they wouldn't notice any of that. Again, when we see something happening for a good reason at just the right time, that's when we marvel at God's providence in that event. And in doing that, we minimize his consistent providential work that is going on all the time, literally in everything that is happening in every moment. So if you think back to Genesis 22, we see that the ram is, is right where it needs to be, right at the exact time it needs to be there. And some might be tempted to, to call that miraculous. But the fact is, it's actually just the culmination of a million instances of God's divine providence and ordinary things. I think of every non-miraculous thing that happened in every moment over just, you know, the years leading up to that ram being where he needed to be, exactly when he needed to be there. So every single action of that ram's life, the ram's parents meeting at the right time, so the ram would be born when it is born. The, you know, the ram surviving birth, the ram being protected from predators all of his entire life. You know, the, the, the fact that the ram decided, I'm going to go over to this mountain to look for food and not this mountain. Going on in the, in the brain of a ram. 
and just think the thicket growing, right? The thicket growing in that exact place. So whenever, I don't know how thicket gets planted, but whenever the thicket was planted, however many years ago that was, it, it had to be at that exact time so that the branches would grow to the perfect height and form to entangle the ram's horns at just the right strength and the right hold and the right size of the ram. And no one walking by that thicket just a few days before would have stared at it and marveled, look at the providence of God in this thicket. Yet God was, despite what we know, if we knew it, God's mind, we would have. Yet God even then is providing for Abraham in this amazing way in order that the ram could be, the, the ram there is, is pointed to as a picture of, of the sacrifice of Christ later on. The, the greater descendant of Isaac. Je, you know, Jesus Christ, our atoning sacrifice for our sins, he's descended from Isaac. So just think about this, just a very small part of God's perfect plan to save us from our sins is his providence in the ordinary means of plant growth on a mountain in Moriah, back when Abraham was there. This is God providentially working even in these things, even in normal, ordinary means. It's just amazing to think about. Quickly, on to paragraph four. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that his determinate counsel extendeth itself even to the first fall in all other sinful actions, both of angels and men, and that not by a bare permission, that's important, which, which also he most wisely and powerfully boundeth and otherwise ordereth and governeth in a manifold dispensation to his most holy ends, yet so as the sinfulness of their acts proceedeth only from the creatures and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of Sin. Again, this is this, so this is like an expansion on paragraph two, but wanting to state clearly that God's determinate counsel extends to even the sinful actions of men and angels. And not by simple permission, right? That's what it says there. So that's huge. He's not simply allowing us to sin and then working in response to what we do. Right? He's not God anymore if he's responding. So that's not what's going on. He governs it in such a way that it leads to his, what it says here, his most holy ends. The sin proceeds, so this is what it's teaching. Sin proceeds, comes from only us. It comes from only us, and he is not the author or approver of it, yet he is still sovereign over it. Again, this is extremely difficult to grasp. In fact, probably impossible for us. So if you're like, this, what, I don't. There's a sense in which that should be, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, but it's, this is what the Bible presents to us. And so there's a, and we should expect that there's things that our finite minds can't handle. Uh, this is difficult for us to grasp, but much easier for us to see it in our lives though, Right? And it all speaks to the wisdom of God. So, Because many of us here, there are particularly awful sins or sinful habits or patterns 
that were, when you think about it, a necessary part of your testimony. Right, so I'll give you some of your examples. From that, no, I'm joking. I won't do that. Um, uh, that. But there are serious sinful patterns, sinful habits that God used to bring you to him. We are, so, so we're still responsible for them. We're still guilty for them. Yet through God's wise and kind providence, he used that very sin in some way to bring us to him. Our sinfulness, while something that we long to be free of forever, allows us to see God in all of his glory in a greater way than the angels can see him. God's glory, because God's glory is so much brighter when it's set against a dark backdrop. We see God greater because of our sin. We see God in a greater way. We see see him, we understand holiness better because of the existence of sin. I mean, we see that in culture. Culture knows. Like in a movie. Think of any superhero movie. Like just think of Superman movie. It's just not a very good, it's kind of fun maybe for a while to watch, you know, a guy who can fly and is really strong and if he's just picking up cars for no reason or using his laser vision or something like that. But what makes you see Superman as good is when Lex Luthor comes in and wants to blow up California with a nuclear, however that goes, or an earthquake. I forget how that, it was a long time since I've seen that movie. But anyway, that's where you see Okay, Superman is good because I see the contrast with Lex Luthor. We see God is great and he is glorious, and we see it even more so when we see our sin. So while we don't know exactly how God does this, we can see why he does, and we praise him all the more for it. He receives more glory from us this way. And this is also such an encouragement for us, right, when we're discipling, when we're parenting, because it's frustrating and stubborn as some of these sins in these people's lives might be, God is providentially at work. We can trust it. And this is great. He works other people's sin for your good also. So think of the story of Joseph. Other people sinning against Joseph worked for the good of all of Israel. The sin against Joseph from his brothers, the sin against Joseph from Potiphar's wife, It all works out for the good of others. And a much more significant, more important example is in our salvation. There is a sense in which we are so thankful for the most sinful act imaginable. Not thankful for the sin of it, but we're thankful that it happened, the murder of Jesus Christ. So that's what we see in that fourth paragraph, paragraph 5. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin, and for other just and holy ends, so that whatsoever befalls any of his elect is by his appointment, for his glory, and their good. So this one is, again, this one's huge for our our thinking as we're discipling others. Think about some of the ways that God providentially cares for 
for his children, for, for these, these, I mean, these are church members. These are his children. And sometimes he cares for them by leaving them to manifold the temptations for a season. And, and it gives you all of those reasons right there. Why does he do that? One, to chast, maybe to chastise them for their former sins. To chastise them. It's, and it's important for us that we learn, because it's important for us that we learn how serious sin is. So if, 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 a, if a drunkard was able to just stop drinking anytime they wanted, then they wouldn't learn everything they need to about how serious sin is and about how powerful God is. Another reason to discover the hidden strength of their corruption and the deceitfulness of their hearts. So to, to, to be reminded of just how sinful we are before a holy God. Another reason to, to be humbled. Sin humbles us. It reminds us of our need. And it also, another reason, it causes us to realize our dependence on God and to make us more alert and watchful of all future sinful dangers with the promise that whatsoever, including sin, that befalls any of his elect is for his good and their glory. So next time you ask when you're, you know, your kid or your person you're discipling, why does this kid keep falling into the same sin? Why won't he listen? Why, why, why does he keep doing it? Or maybe why, why do I continue to fall? I don't want to dismiss, to be sure, it could be because you aren't actually repenting, and you need to be repenting, but we can also remember that God is still providentially working even in the times where we fail, even in the times when they fail. Again, this is God working. And then go back to if you're starting to be like, oh, so I, don't, I can sin, and it's not that. That is not. Go back to the, the, a couple ones ago. You are responsible for your own sin. This is just a message of you thank God that he is greater than your sin and that he loves you that much. Paragraph six says, For those wicked and ungodly men whom God as the righteous judge for former sin doth blind and harden, from them he not only withholdeth his grace, whereby they might have been enlightened in their understanding and wrought upon their hearts, but sometimes also withdraweth the gifts which they had and exposeth them to such objects as their corruption makes occasion of sin, and withal gives them over to their own lusts, the temptations of the world, and the power of Satan, whereby it comes to pass that they harden themselves under those means which God useth for the softening of others. This is a kind of a counterpoint to paragraph 5, in that we see God's good providence even in the unregenerate heart, even in those who are not saved. This is, and so this is also important for us as we go forward in evangelism. God uses, God uses their, the unregenerate person's sin to, according to the Bible, to crush them, to bring them down, to destroy them. He takes away that which is good and pure and exposes them to that which will cause them to condemn themselves further. He gives them over to their own lusts and the natural destruction that will occur. That's what we see in Romans 1, which is in there. They are hardened, we're told in this, by the same means that God uses to soften others. 
So again, this is so helpful to us in our evangelism and discipleship because it helps us to discern whether we are evangelizing or discipling. But, but even in those times where we're not sure, that the remedy is the same. Showing them the truth of Scripture and explaining the gospel, inviting them to repent of their sins and to follow after, and to follow after Christ, it causes those who are saved to soften and melt and repent and believe and causes those who are lost to just harden further and rebel more. Finally, paragraph 7. As the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures, so after a more special manner it taketh care of His church. Let me read that again. After a more special manner it taketh care of his church and disposeth of all things to the good thereof. So that's a, that's a glorious truth to end on. You can see why the paragraph seven is seven and not paragraph like three or something. This is a glorious truth to end on. God's providence takes care of his people in a special way. Now this is seen in, in just looking at the normal means of everyday life, Right? So I was thinking when, when um, you know, ev- everyone experiences the, the grace of God, believers, unbelievers, all the time, they experience God's kindness to them. So like when our red team goes out to evangelize, when they go out to downtown Greeley, or they go to the UNC campus, there are all kinds of people there that they're interacting with, and all of them together are being providentially cared for by God in all kinds of ways that all of them are taking for granted. They're enjoying the company of friends. They're maybe having fun playing, using their bodies to you know, play sports and stuff. They're enjoying food. They're breathing. So, so everyone... Is, is doing those things. They're enjoying God's providential care for them. But the members of our red team are going to be at that moment receiving even greater providential care as they enjoy many of those same things. But they're also in that moment, they're using their brains and their ears and their mouths in such a way that's going to benefit them for all of eternity. It's better for them. And so that's something, uh, that's something as, as we finish up here that, that you need to latch on to as you face the reality of, of if you're ever meeting like someone who's described in paragraph six, when you're evangelizing to someone like that, you, you need to have these truths in your life. They strengthen you. If, you have, if you've ever had to deal with someone like that, if you've watched them like harden right in front of you and get more and more bitter and angry as you try to help them to see their sin. If you've ever seen that and experienced that and you've felt the lashing out from that, you know, there's a sense in which you can quickly jump in and be like, oh, this isn't going well. But when you fall back on the foundation, on the truth of the providence of God, you can in that moment just, just be grateful because you know that God is in that moment providentially caring for you in that situation in a, in a special way. 
even as that person might just get more and more angry and scream at you. So every person that you evangelize, every person that you disciple, every conversation that you have is not only an opportunity to witness God's providential care in the life of someone else, but it's always, as a believer, always an opportunity to experience God's providential care for you every time you use your life to evangelize and disciple. 